Thanks for listening to this sermon from River of Life Alliance Church. We hope the Holy Spirit uses it to point you toward Jesus. If you call River of Life home, we'd encourage you to join a journey group where you can unpack our sermons with a group of people who want to get to know you, who will care for you, read the Bible with you, pray over you, and serve alongside you. God, it's been sweet to be able to sit in your presence and and worship you and exalt your name and see you for as great as you are this morning. God, there's great peace, there's great joy found in that. And Father, I pray as we open up your word that says it's a living and an active word that it would speak to our hearts today in order to move us forward. And Lord, as we move forward in this series that we have been in, lost and found, I pray that you will encourage us, help us to have your heart. God, would you implant that in us for people? A heart that desires to see people changed by the gospel. God, we pray for Brittany and Taylor as they're here this weekend. Help us all to discern your will and know what, what you want. And uh, Lord, just thank you for them being willing to come here to meet us and, and go through our, our process here and even just sit up on the stage and share about their lives to a group that, that's all brand new to them. Lord, I just pray that you'll fill them with peace and calm as they go through this as well. God, we love you. We're grateful for your work in our life, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some years ago, I had a job in a large office building as a maintenance person, and I was sent up to the executive area to do some painting up there, and they were doing some remodel in that area, so there was a contractor that was working up there, and I began to paint one of the walls. As I did, I started my normal habit where I would just, I'd paint the edges and get the cut in. And then I would begin to paint in sections on the wall, a larger section at the top. And then I'd come down. And one of the things that I observed about my painting over the years is I would, it never really ended up quite as nice as I wanted it to. The spots where there was overlap, it looked nicer, a little darker. And other spots you could find little thin areas. And the contractor that was working near me was observing my painting. And he was watching, and he didn't say anything for a long time. And he could see I was struggling with it. I knew I didn't really enjoy doing this in a way that wouldn't turn out nice. I was frustrated with some of the painting I'd done in the past, and I just I wanted this to look nice. Finally, he came over to me, and he said, Hey, could I help you a little bit and give you some hints on how to paint better? He had tact in the way he approached me. He was careful in the way that he critiqued my work, but he showed me a better way. When it comes to sharing the gospel, so often what we're doing is we are showing somebody a better way, approaching them sometimes in a place where they weren't asking for our input and tact is needed, care is needed in how we approach that. Other times people are in a desperate place and they're looking for input, they're looking for answers. As we look at the Gospels and read throughout the New Testament, we discover a, a process involved where God is calling us as his people to be his representatives, to be his mouthpiece to the world. There really is no greater joy in, in a person's life, a Christian's life, than seeing somebody else embrace the Savior that they've come to love. Tim Keller recently posted this and he said being public about your faith simply means not hiding the wellspring of your life 
not hiding who you truly are. It's that idea that when I give away Jesus, I'm giving away my most treasured possession. The thing I love the most, I'm sharing that with somebody else. And I have the opportunity to paint the picture of a Savior who loves them and allow them to embrace him as well. If we did a survey through the book of Acts, we would find multiple evangelistic sermons and we'd find evangelistic conversations. The New Testament Christians viewed witnessing as the responsibility of every single Christian. Not just the apostles, but lay people as well. All of us are responsible for sharing our faith. They proclaimed words to crowds and to individuals on a one-on-one basis. They preached Christ to anyone who would listen and even responded to the doubters when doubters had questions. They, they related the salvation history and they shared their own personal experience with Jesus. They responded to eager questioners and they offered good news to people who were reluctant to listen. We see throughout the book of Acts that they practiced both mass evangelism And they practiced personal witnessing. They used every possible means to get the good news out. Think about it in our world today. How many means we have to get the good news out. We have all kinds of means. And things like writing and Facebook and texting and movies all have their place. But there is one thing that can't beat or that can beat any of those things. And that's a one-on-one personal conversation. Don't you think our world is begging to see real, authentic Christians who don't just spout off in short little snipe attacks? I think our world is begging to know you. And we see it in the book of Acts. We see places where we, we find disciples who would go to the world and they would share both in a one-on-one context and in a proclamation through a, in a crowd. A few of the methods we see them employ. Acts chapter 4, we find Peter and John where they're, they've been persecuted here for healing a man and they're preaching and proclaiming Jesus in this chapter. And they get arrested and they begin to testify to the healing that they've done in Jesus' name. They begin to defend why and it's done in Jesus' name. And they say that there's no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. And they're saying this to a group of people, but it's a conversation. And that group of people recognizes that they're just normal men. Common men. I love that line in scripture. Acts chapter 7, we see another example. We see this great example when, when uh, the apostles were speaking to people. And here they're Jews. And they use scripture, the history of scripture, to explain Jesus to people. So knowing their, their audience, their context, they know that it's an audience that accepts scripture as the word of God. And they begin to explain scripture in that context. Another example is Acts chapter 8, and you have Peter who's talking to the Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian eunuch, here's just a one-on-one conversation, is reading the word of God. And Peter comes along, sent by God, and they meet up. And this Ethiopian asks Peter about the word of God. Would you explain it to me? He has spiritual questions. And right there, this Ethiopian trusts Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And we see him baptized immediately afterwards. There's all kinds of different methods that we find throughout Scripture. And when we come to evangelism and sharing our faith, we need to employ the right vehicle to help us share our faith. 
It's, it's the difference between having a pickup to haul something and a sports car to have fun in and just cruise around in. They do different things. We need to know which vehicle we need depending on the audience that we're speaking to. One of the passages we're going to go to today is Acts chapter 17. And if you would turn there as we refresh our memories a little bit about where we've come from over these last couple of weeks. In Acts chapter 17, we're going to find another example of how Paul uh, was able to share the gospel with a group of of pagan uh, pagan people who didn't believe. If we refresh our memory a little bit, we've talked over these last couple of weeks about the eternal destiny of those who die outside of Christ, who don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And we we covered that in the first week. Then we looked at the invitation in John chapter 1 that is come and see. And our invitation for people is come and see Jesus. Come and experience him for yourself. Last week, we learned what is the core of the gospel, really what is the gospel. And if I were to give that to somebody and share that with somebody, how do I share that? So let's do a little bit of review and see how well you remember. Now, while you're thinking and refreshing your memories, I just want to uh, tell you real quickly, I have been so encouraged this week to hear a couple of stories of how people, remember, first of all, remember we prayed at the end of the service last week that God would give us opportunity to share the gospel? Several people shared the gospel with, with friends and family this past week. Isn't that awesome? As they took that step of faith. Yeah, let's give the Lord applause for that. Thank you, Jesus, for, for giving opportunity. But what were those three things? If we were to share the gospel, we, get, we, we remembered three specific words that would help us share the gospel. I'll give you the first one, and then you guys take the next two. Okay, ready? Problem? Ooh, that was kind of weak. Can we do it again? Problem, solution, response. Okay? And with those three words, it can lock in our brain what it is, what is the core of the gospel that we could give away to other people. I would go over that again with you another time when we have some more time because it would, it'll really help you as, you as you think about what am I bringing to people? What am I sharing with them if I'm to give away my Savior? So Acts chapter 17 is where we are today, and we're going to look at a method for sharing the gospel. Nowhere in any part of scripture did Paul, do we see Paul dealing with such a pagan culture as we do when he goes to Athens in Acts 17. He notices and makes some observations in their culture, and we're going to find those in just a second. And he begins to relate to them the, the, who Jesus is. He points out to them that there's this idol, this, this place of worship within their culture that is declared to an unknown God. And Paul points to the one who really is God. He helps them find this God. And there he then moves on to affirming the, res, the, the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And at the end, we'll find that many people scoffed Paul for this and, and didn't believe. They were polite in it, but they didn't believe. So let's jump into the text in Acts chapter 17. Here the Apostle Paul is, is, is preaching to this, this uh, assembly in Athens. But we're going to back up a little bit to verse 16. Where I'm just going to summarize a few things as we look at the context of what's happening. If you have your Bible, you can be reading through that as I'm sharing this. But Paul here is on his second missionary journey. He's in a town, a city, uh, the country of Greece, but he's in the city of Athens. The ancient city of Athens. And many of us know Athens from history as we've studied it in school. But Athens, prior to Paul's visit, had been a place that was quite amazing. 
a beautiful city, a, a place of thousands of people that lived together, a place that had beautiful architecture. You think of the Parthenon that exists there up on the Acropolis, which is that tall mound in the center of Athens. And we see those buildings today somewhat in ruins, but they were beautiful buildings in those days. They were actually, though, not art. They were temples to idols, to false gods. And so this city was a place that had literature and science and philosophy and rhetoric was flourishing there. It attracted intellectuals from all over the world. People such as Socrates and Plato and Aristotle all were part of Athens prior to Paul's visit several hundred years before him. In verse 17, we find out that it is still, when Paul visits, uh, a religious city. A place where there are many gods to choose from. Some said that there were more gods in Athens than there were people. We, we now admire the art and architecture of Athens. But in Paul's day, those things were directly associated with worship of false gods. And Paul observed this as he walked into the city. As he sent in, he looks around and he begins to observe his surroundings. And he's literally grieved. He's moved by it. And he begins to reason with people in the center of the city, kind of like our downtown area. He begins to reason with them there. And he makes mention of the prominent camps that, of thought that were in Athens. You see that in verse 18. You see, there were two different groups of thought there. And some of these, I think, relate to our American culture. You see this thought in our culture. You see the Epicurious thought where these were people who, who found pleasure as their chief goal in life. Sound a little bit like America today? Pleasure was their chief goal, their, their chief goal and, and they pursued that. Anything where they could be free of pain and, and disturbing types of passions. And they had all kinds of superstitious fears and anxiety about death. They didn't deny the existence of, of God, but they argued that he took no interest in the lives of everyday people. Then you have the Stoics who followed Stoa. This was a teaching based on living in harmony with nature. It emphasized man's rational abilities, our abilities to think, our individuality and self-sufficiency. Does that also sound a little bit like a lot of American West? That idea of of being a person who is self-sufficient, that God is in everything. And when Paul came, the city of Athens was embraced by those two thoughts. And Paul looks at that and he's grieved. And the city is hanging on to these old methods of thinking, these old ways of thinking that were not based on Scripture or the true God. And so into that he comes and he begins to preach. I think it sounds a lot like our context today. A culture that doesn't embrace the true God, embraces gods of sorts, but not the true God. And so Paul looks around and he begins to preach. And it says that the people began to call him a babbler. Just somebody who rambled on and on. You see these people liked to hear new ideas. They would be polite and listen. But it never really impacted their lives. Philosophy was something they loved to debate. They wanted new ideas. But they really didn't do anything with all those new ideas. And so Paul comes into this and it stirs a little bit of, of a reaction. And he's brought before a council 
up probably up somewhere near the Acropolis and he's up there and he's going to begin to speak and stand before a group who's going to make a decision of whether or not Paul can continue to share his ideas in this city. And so we pick up in verse 22 where he addresses this group. And it says this. So Paul standing in the midst of the... uh, 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 Sorry. (laughs) Do you ever stumble over words when you first look at them again? Arapagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. You see, Paul starts off with something that's important for us to notice. He gives an insight in how we can approach sharing the gospel in a culture that does not believe In the same God we believe in. You see, Paul, we find here, was a student of the culture. He makes observations about their cultural context. And that's where he begins to speak to them. He says, I perceive. And he points out that as I passed along and observed. And he says, I found. He's a student of the culture. You see, as Christians, a lot of times what we tend to do is we fall into two camps. Two extremes. A lot of times we can fall into one side, which would be the extreme of fear, being afraid of the culture, where we retreat so far from it, we have no idea about the culture anymore. Or in that, maybe perhaps we become angry about the culture and we become just a bitter person. The other side is people as Christians who become so embracing of the culture that there's really no difference between us and the culture. Oh yeah, we've studied it, but we've also become like it. Paul does neither of these two things. He is in the middle of that culture, and he begins to make observations about it. He notices things. And he notices them with a heart of God, which is a heart of love for the people who are struggling in the middle of this culture. I think one of the takeaways we can find from Paul here is to realize it's important for us to be people who are students of our culture so that we can even speak to our culture. Do you believe that God is relevant to the American culture? I sure do. But we have to know the culture in order to know how to bring the gospel into the midst of that type of culture. He says, and I found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown and thus I proclaim. In other words, I can tell you who that God is. I can tell you who the true God is. And he does this tactic several times throughout. And so let's look at some of those ways that he begins to relate the culture to the gospel. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. You see, we tend to create idols. We do it in our culture. They did it in their culture. For the people of Athens, it was the creation of literal idols, a common thing that you would find in the ancient world. They also invented gods in their mind. And you know some of the the ancient Greek culture of how many gods they have. Thousands of them they had. But what are these false gods, these idols? An idol, from a Christian standpoint, is an object that is intended to be a deity. It's intended to be a deity. In other words, we believe in the one true God, but an idol is a substitute for that one true God. It's a substitute God. 
And Paul points out that there is a true God and who he is. And he begins to point out the folly of believing in a God who had to be created by created beings. What kind of a God can be contained in a temple made by man? Instead, he points them to the true God that they need. See, Paul begins to paint a picture of the glory of God. When he speaks to the issues of their society, he begins to paint a picture of how awesome and how beautiful and how satisfying God is. And so he says to them that the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, that this is the true God. God is the creator. So the idea of a God who is created defeats the very definition of God would be something that Paul is saying here. There's a struggle when we begin to speak out about these things. This line between faith and speaking up. The struggle between talking in anger and talking in love. And Paul begins to press into this conversation with this group as he proclaims the gospel to them. I've got a question for you though. Do you think in our day and age, we ever substitute the true God for lesser created things? We all worship things. We all worship things. And unless we see how great God is, we probably will just react like, well, yeah, we all need to have something that's priority in our life. But Paul paints a picture of the glory of God. And I think, though, we need to be aware of the the idols in our culture so that we can help people find satisfaction in the true God. There's a verse in 1 John that begins to describe perhaps what some of the idols of our culture are. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 says, Do not love or cherish the world, nor the things that are in the world, the created things. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, which are sensual cravings, the lust of the eyes, greedy longings of the mind, the pride of life, the assurance of one's own resources or stability of earthly things. These do not come from the Father, but are from the world. They're created. They're not necessarily bad. Material things are not bad, but it's what we want from those things. The world passes away and it disappears and with it the forbidden cravings. But he who does the will of God and carries out his purposes in his life abides forever. I found a very helpful thing in Peacemakers Ministries as I have been involved in that. And they describe three big idols from those verses. Three big substitutes that we find in the world that really should be met in God. And those three things is, is described in Peacemakers are satisfaction, significance, and security. That we look for those things to be substitutes for God. I see this in the people around me all the time. I see it, the tendency in my own life to look for those things. And satisfaction, it's that idea of trying to find a place where I'm comforted, whether that be food, whether that be a substance that I put into my body, whether that be happiness or exercise or something that will satisfy me. But God is our satisfaction. Significance. Finding significance could be the lust of the eyes, that desire for what I see I want and I want people to perceive me a certain way so that the way that I perform or the way that I look or the type of car that I drive becomes the thing that I'm looking for when God is our significance or he is our identity. 
or when it comes to security, the issues of trying to, the, the, the pride of life, but the issues of trying to find my stability in my wealth or my job or my success or my ability to be perfect. Our culture seems to worship those types of substitutes all the time. We look for those things to replace God. Author Ken Sandy said, when people or things get elevated as false gods, they feed our core desires of satisfaction, significance, and security. We've then left our first love. Worship false gods. Worshiping false gods leads us to try to obtain a false peace, fulfillment, happiness, security, by leading us to sacrifice others and demanding them to give us what we want, causing conflict with God, within, and with others. He's just pointing out what we already know by experience. These substitutes for God that we thought would give us freedom end up being the very thing that enslave us. And we become slaves to our, our substitutes. Verse 25. Nor is he, God, is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You see, Paul's observation of the people of Athens is that they had become enslaved to those gods. That they went through all these cultic rituals to keep their immature gods happy. Their gods were not interested in human matters. And they were enslaved to them. But it's not so with the true God. It's not that the creation is bad. It's not that the things that God has put into our world are bad in our world, the substitutes maybe we, we have turned to, but it's what we're asking them to do for us. So perhaps we're looking for sex to do something that it shouldn't do for us. The root of, of satisfaction. God created it to be a good thing, something that within his intended boundaries is a good thing, but it becomes an idol or a substitute for God when we begin to look for that to do what God should be doing in our life. When we begin to to bring that outside of the bounds of, of what he created it for. And in the end, men and women, we become enslaved to it, don't we? Have you talked to anybody who's, who's in the world recently? We become enslaved to that. We hear it all the time, whether it be substances and addictions of various kinds or the desire for attention or the desire to be seen as beautiful. And we root our identities in those things and we're substituting God in those things. And Paul starts then with their world and he pointed out that they need Christ. And in this we find he does the same thing. He points them to God who is the provider That God is not served by human hands. The true God doesn't need you to be enslaved to him. Their idols had to be served, but the true God serves his creation. He provides everything his creation needs. So, depending on the idol, we can use scripture to show how deep the riches of Christ are. Perhaps you know somebody, perhaps it's even yourself that is struggling with a substitute for God. And we can begin to show them that really God is the one who provides what they need. Not the created thing. And so we're enslaved to them, but it also causes a deeper deception. And that deception is this, is that idols cause us to think we're in control. Maybe not the idols themselves, but the worship of idols makes us think that we're in control. 
Idols promise freedom, but idols never give freedom. We often start off, and if you look at somebody you know that's gone into rebellion, oftentimes the core root of that is the desire for freedom, right? But in the end, does a person find freedom in rebellion? Verse 26. Chapter 17, verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's not actually far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, which, by the way, that's a piece of Athenian poetry. And he's, again, using their culture And he's pointing out a truth. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, again, their culture. For then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. We find in these verses that really God is in control. But the false gods of the people of Athens had led them to believe that they were in control because the true God had not yet stopped them from being able to worship these false things. And he's even planted within them a desire to seek God and feel their way towards him. But they were stopping short of finding the true God. They were stopping short on substitutes. Can you identify in your life Perhaps the life of somebody else you know how we're stopping short when we find substitutes. Perhaps the drunkard is not as far from God as we might think. Perhaps the person addicted to shopping is not as far from God as we might think. They're looking. And Paul points out, as he points them back to a sovereign God, that God is actually in control. Even when we think we're in control, God is the one who's in control. He's giving us time and space to find him and to feel our way towards him. Where we will find him to be our satisfaction. And so when we're talking to somebody, we may find that somebody is looking for something in their life. They're finding some amount of satisfaction, a temporary satisfaction in their sin. Hebrews talks about that even the, the idea that, that sin brings a temporary satisfaction. But in the end, sin becomes a bitter gall to us. And we're looking for answers. And so Paul continues on and he begins to provide a way towards salvation. We find it beginning in verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul begins to point people away from idols, the the ability to break free from them. People can find freedom from substitutes, cheap substitutes in Jesus. If we want to be free from our constant enslavement to need more stuff, our constant need to be perfect on Facebook, our, our constant comparison of each other, freedom from the drug of our choice, we are told to abandon them, repent, and turn towards Jesus where there's freedom, where real freedom is found. 
Paul helps us to see that there will come a day when judgment will be based upon righteousness, but not on your personal righteousness, but weighted upon the righteousness of Jesus, which covers the person who has believed. That's freedom. And he paints this beautiful, this beautiful picture where we see Jesus is the Savior. You see, the problem is not that created things are inherently bad. But the problem is of what we ask created things to do. We ask them to do what only Jesus can offer. And so Paul paints this picture and he shows us a model of bringing the gospel to a pagan world. Observation about their culture. And he relates that to the gospel and he says, this is greater, this is far more significant. It will bring you so much more satisfaction in life. But look what happened, verse 32. And now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. They're just being polite. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. And that's the line to hang on to. And among them, there were also several people. You see, there were some who believed, but not everyone believed. Our job in bringing the gospel is not to do the Holy Spirit's job, which is conviction. It's simply to be the mouthpiece to the world. But we paint a picture to people through our words, through the description of Scripture, through the sharing of Scripture, of this great God that we have found our satisfaction in. And I think we as a church have to ask the question, is our satisfaction really found in Jesus? Because if it is, we will be able to begin to describe the goodness of our God to a culture, a world that needs to hear about it. Imagine a church where everybody sitting out there is satisfied in Christ. Our deepest satisfaction is found in him. We aren't looking to substitutes, cheap substitutes to give us a temporary satisfaction. Then we have something to share. Scripture talks so much about the satisfaction found in Jesus. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Psalm 107, he, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Has he done that in your life? Our prayer is that we would be a church that is so satisfied in Jesus. We have a testimony of his goodness to us, whether we're walking through a hard season of life right now or an easy season of life. That God's goodness would be so rich we can describe that to people around us. And so our challenge would be to be a people satisfied in him and then proclaim that to our world. We're going to pray as we conclude today that God would help us to be so satisfied in him that we literally just couldn't shut up about him. That we talk to him, uh, talk to people about him in our culture. Can we pray that together? Let's bow our heads and as we conclude, let's ask for opportunity. Let's ask for him to do that in us. Lord, I pray that today, as we've heard your word, as we've digested the method and the means with which Paul brought the gospel to the people of Athens, that we would be a people who also find our satisfaction only in you. And then we would help other people find their satisfaction in you as well. Jesus, there's so many false gods that our culture and the people around us turn to, our family members, our friends. 
And as we conclude this series, Lord, we pray for more opportunity to share the good news with people around us. God, help us to be wise, to be tactful, to know how we can engage people in conversation about the glory of Jesus, his death and his resurrection, and how that changes life and brings freedom, that it brings grace into a life. And Lord, I pray that you would make us your messengers and your people in that. God, thank you for loving us. And we pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, would you stand with me for our benediction today as we conclude? Comes from Psalm 103, a psalm about finding satisfaction in Jesus. One of my favorites. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives your sins, who heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, and who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, and who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Amen, right? Hey, as you go from here, go in peace. You are the messengers of God. And let's remember this. Next week, we get to come back and we get to celebrate Palm Sunday together. So we'll see you back next week. Have a good week. I was buried beneath my shame. Who could carry that kind?